Koi CBD has been a leader in the hemp wellness space since their start in 2015. The company is family-owned and community-focused. They have an expansive product range, including broad and full-spectrum CBD products and more, in tinctures, gummies, vapes, topicals, and even CBD for pets. All of their products are third-party tested by accredited laboratories to ensure potency and purity, and lab results are posted online for consumers to access. They have over 11,000 positive reviews posted on their website. Koi products are offered at thousands of retail locations nationwide. They offer discount programs through their website for veterans, as well as a Koi Rewards loyalty program to earn discounts and a subscribe and save service. So go to KoiCBD.com, that's K-O-I-C-B-D.com, and enter discount code NOEL, N-O-W-E-L-L, for 20% off a single order through the end of January 2022. Thank you so much for your support. Yo, what's up? This is Sean the Shaman, and you're tuned into the Bradley's House podcast. Hey guys, happy new year, happy 2022, and welcome back to Bradley's House, the podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the executive director of the Noel Family Foundation and our host, Ms. Kelly Noel. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good, Jared, and for several reasons. First of all, it's a new year, always exciting, very hopeful. Good things are going to happen. I can feel it this year. It's going to be a good year. But mostly because in the history, in the long history of our podcast, we've been doing this just over a year. And only time I've been this nervous was our very first episode, because it was not only our first episode, but it was my dad, someone super close and personal. And I just wanted it to go really well. But ever since we started the podcast, I've been wanting to have this person on as a guest. And um, she's super wonderful and special to me. And I'm I think this is the second most nervous I've been for any episode, even with those like my favorite artists that we talked to that I fangirled out. I was super nervous with that, but in a totally different way. So I'm excited. I'm excited for today's episode. Well, I'm excited as well. Now, for those of you that are checking out the podcast, make sure you are following the Noel Family Foundation on social media, following the website, because there's a lot of cool things that constantly are going on. And uh, one of the things that we did uh, earlier or I guess later in 2021, uh, was the auction um, to benefit the Noel Family Foundation. And that is kind of how this whole episode began. Kelly, who is our guest today? Today, I am so happy to have the clinical director of New Method Wellness, which is an extremely well-respected substance abuse treatment center in Southern California. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's been featured on several episodes of the Dr. Phil Show as a mental health expert. She's a frequent contributor to media outlets such as NBC News, MSN, Elle Magazine, and Glamour. She is in recovery. She has not only treated some of my family and close friends, 
but she's also been my therapist for over two years. She's a wife and a mother and a truly beautiful human being inside and out. Please welcome Dr. Deanna Crosby to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh my gosh, I don't even know what to say. What a beautiful entry. I hope I can live up to that. That was just like the sweetest thing I've ever heard. Damn, Kelly, you just came with it. Talk about closing, huh, Jared? Yeah. That was... That was that was big. That that was strong right there. That's been the best yeah, introduction I think uh, so far. Yeah, yeah, by far, by far. But she makes it easy. It's super easy when there's like so much information. There's so much that she's done, and she's really a truly incredible person. And I'm trying not to say that through the entire interview because then people are going to start rolling their eyes. But I really, she's one of my most favorite people on the entire planet, and I'm super happy to have you with us today, Deanna. Back at you, girl. I always tell Kelly that if she wasn't my patient, I would force her to be my best friend (laughs) because there are like few people on the planet that I can sit there and tell, like, I forget we're in session. We're just like, just telling you, she's just such an amazing person to be around. I just love you to death, Kelly. And I really appreciate you. I absolutely, I absolutely second that. And um, she's, she's not my patient. And I did totally jam myself (laughs) down her throat. I was just like, we're going to do this fucking podcast and be friends. And, and, uh, and here we are. So I, I totally get that. It, yeah. it worked out. It worked out. Well, one thing that I always am grateful for with the podcast and with the, the Bradley's House Facebook group, and even when people come up to us at an event, is that people are so open and honest about their struggles. And I think that that's huge because the more we can be open about just normal human struggles, the more we can destigmatize um, addiction and mental health and all these things, and the more people can be helped. So that was one reason why, and I know I talked with you about this before, Deanna, that I wanted to let people know you're my therapist. I've been in therapy. I think everybody should be in therapy. In fact, we joke all the time, right? Instead of people having college funds for their kids, they should have therapy funds. <laughs> That's what I told you. Uh, uh, one of my mentors told me that people should um, have a jar when their baby's born and just put therapy on it. Never, just never <laughs> get put a few bucks in there. And exactly. Then when they- 15, send them off to therapy because I don't know if everybody needs it, but it's so good for people. I mean, I've seen so many people get so much success out of therapy. Absolutely. It really is helpful. So I wanted to start by talking about addiction. Obviously, you're the clinical director of New Method Wellness and you are in recovery. So you have, how many years do you have now? I've been sober for 32 years. That is remarkable. I got so because, close that I was six. I was going to say, because you're only 33. Wow. So. <laughs> I love when people don't get that. <laughs> Takes them a minute. Do the math. I had to take my shoes off to do the math, but I got it now. <laughs> so I think a lot of people who are not in recovery confuse substance use with substance abuse. Absolutely. What are some signs of the difference of those? Well, it was interesting because we were just talking before the show started about I went on this show and everybody was wanting to know if I thought they were an alcoholic. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if you're an alcoholic. I just got here. Do you think you're an alcoholic? (laughs) Guys, this host of the show, he had a bottle of Jim Beam on his desk. And he was like, well, the reason I have this bottle, he's getting really like defensive. And I was like, I don't even care. I'm just here to, you know, be a guest. And so... (laughs) 
I think, and or sometimes I'll go on vacation with people and they'll say, we'll just be standing there. They'll go, so do you think I drink too much? And I'm like, I have not, you're on vacation. I have no idea what you're doing. I mean, I yeah. So uh, for me, I think the difference is, um, I do think that I know there are people in recovery that think like nobody should use substances at all. And I'm not one of those people. I'm a really good friend and client of mine says that drugs aren't bad. I just can't do them. Mm. So I'm kind of of that thought, like, I don't think drugs and alcohol are bad. I think they should all be legalized, Mm. but I do think that they're not for me. I don't have a switch in my brain that says that's enough. So So I that's, yeah. I just will keep going and going and going and going and go. And then, you know, I've always had a really addictive personality starting out with like sugar and relationships and all kinds of stuff. Like if there's a possibility to be addicted to it, I will be addicted to it. <laughs> I mean, luckily I have this really patient husband. Cause I'm always like, do you love me? Do you think I'm pretty? Is everything okay? <laughs> We've been married like 17 years, you know? And he's like, yes, you're pretty. I love you. Okay. Cause I'm just such a like attention addict. No clue what that's like. Uh, Are you being serious, Jared? No, no. Uh, Anna, no. Anna's very much the the same way. She's uh, she's a beautiful soul, and uh, and I love the reminder of it constantly. And if I don't, she says, "Is there something wrong?" Yeah. What are you thinking? You know, <laughs> Are you mad at me right now? I don't know. I was thinking, how come sometimes I like mustard on a hot dog, but other times I like ketchup, but I never like them both together. That's what I was thinking. My husband always goes, babe, I'm not as complicated as you think I am. I'm literally thinking nothing. (laughs) What were you thinking? Like the other day I said, I feel like you were driving in the car for no reason. And I said, I feel like you could fall out of love with me really easily. (laughs) And he goes, he goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. He is so patient. So I, I will say this, Kelly. I haven't brought this up because it doesn't, it didn't seem fair on the level of a lot of the things that we go through and we talk about here, but you bring up addiction. And for the last like month now, I have genuinely been trying to stop drinking energy drinks. Right? Oh yeah. Those are it super is, addictive, right? It has become my addiction um, to the point where, so I said, I got to get off these things. They can't be good for me. Um, you know, I, I'm done. And the first day that I didn't have any, I never felt like shit so bad in my life to right? the point that I got in the car and drove to 7-Eleven as fast as I could and got to the freezer, opened it and actually cracked it and started drinking it as I was walking to the counter. And this was all like sub, I didn't realize I was doing this, but I just knew that like, if I didn't get this energy drink into my body immediately, like it, my head is pounding. I've got this caffeine headache. I feel sluggish. Like I need to get this thing into me as fast as possible. And it was at that moment that I was like, holy shit, this is, and I mean, again, it's, I don't want to, by no means do I want to compare that to anybody that's been through any kind of struggles with drugs or alcohol, but here I am completely dependent on something. Mm-hmm. And now I find myself in Seven Eleven cannonballing this can before I even get, I paid for an empty can at the register. Yeah. And, um, and I was, you know, I, I thought to myself, I see what, addiction is like to a degree now because these were chemicals that I had to have in my body and I, it was just so I've I, I've, I've been clean for a few weeks now I've <laughs> switched to coffee and <laughs> Jared 
but like it was legitimate like it was a problem for me and um i i guess i never could relate because i never had anything like that before um but i literally found myself like walking around the house in the morning being like all right it's 11:30 you're not getting one you usually already have one by now so you're not getting it it's not it's not going down you had the coffee the coffee's fine you don't need it I, but uh i i went through like misery with that so about once a year, I try to stop eating all recreational sugar. You know, like the recreational sugar is like the donuts, ice cream, blah, 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 all the good stuff. And it it takes about four days for me to stop feeling horrible. Hmm. Like literally dragging and kicking and just hating life. So uh, obviously that leads perfectly into the signs of addiction, signs of substance abuse. If somebody has a question about it, am I addicted? Am I not addicted? What are, what are good signs besides the obvious? Some of the good signs are, I mean, like kind of what Jared was saying brings up the difference between like the definition of addiction to me is when I stop having something and the only relief I can get is to have it again. Hmm. Like I can stop exercising and I don't need the exercise relief. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> but when I stop eating sugar once a year, I am miserable. I just like, I mean, I don't know what it is. And when I stopped doing drugs and when I stopped drinking, when I stopped all that stuff, my life was really a challenge. I mean, I, I think that I detoxed for probably a year or two. Wow. Yeah, it, it was a lot of time to get that stuff out. Yeah, it really does. And I, I hate to tell my clients this, but like they say, how long am I going to detox? And I'm like, oh, you know, different people have different times. But really, I want to say up to two years, especially okay. people detox with opiates for up to two years. Wow. And I think that was me. I think I was detoxing from opiates for up to two years. That's brutal. Yeah, it's hard. Other than stopping and realizing that you can't function unless you start again. Are there other things? Um, well, like, obviously, if you start putting your using, you know, we say drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol, but really we should just say drugs because alcohol is a drug. Right. But if you start putting your using before important things in your life, mm. you know that you're addicted. You know, there's like a, I think Alcoholics Anonymous has a 40 questions and it asks you like, have you ever lost a job? Have you, and you have to really be honest with yourself because I've showed people that questionnaire and they've said, no, I've never lost a job. And I go, come on, let's really think about it. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. or have you lost a relationship because of your drug and alcohol use or have you, you know, this or that, you know, different things. So there's a really good 40 question thing for Alcoholics Anonymous, you can go online and Google it and you can just answer it and see, you know, how it fits in your life. Do you think sometimes too, the very fact that someone's asking means that they might already think they have a problem? Yes. I think they might think they have one. I don't necessarily think it means they have one. I mean, I have clients come to me and say, I'm an alcoholic. And so I sit down and look at their history and we look at, you know, their behaviors and their, um, biology and you know their genetics and then all of a sudden I go wait you only started drinking when your wife died and they go yeah yeah I started drinking when my wife died and I go so you've been drinking heavily since your wife died but you never drank before and they said no I said and you've stopped for the last eight months and they say yeah yeah I go that doesn't look like alcoholism to me Mm. that looks like a situational 
problem where you just didn't have any other way to get relief. And that brings up a really good point too, is I ask my clients who do drink socially to not do it if they're feeling bad. Ah. That becomes a coping mechanism. Like if I'm feeling bad, I want to drink. Mm-hmm. But if I start doing it every time I feel bad, then now I'm just using it as a coping mechanism. I say, if you're going to use alcohol socially, use it socially. Go out and do it socially. Have a friend over, have a glass of wine, that kind of stuff. But don't sit and do it every time you feel sad or scared or lonely because that will be your answer to your problems. That's that's a good point. And that also brings me to my next question, which is uh, the importance of addressing mental health in recovery. Because I don't, I don't think addiction occurs in a vacuum. There's, I, you know, we, our clinic at New Method Wellness, we um, treat dual diagnosis, which means you have a mental health issue and you have a, a substance abuse issue, it's, which I believe that people who are addicted, probably 80% of them have a mental health issue. And when I ask people in their intake, do you have any mental health issues? They say no. And I say, well, have you ever had anxiety? And they go, yeah, I've always had anxiety. And I said, have you ever had depression? And they said, yeah, I've always had depression. And I said, well, that's mental health. That's yeah. a health issue. Anxiety or depression is a mental health issue. So I do believe many, many addicts are self-medicating their depression and anxiety. And usually it happens around like puberty age. I think the combination of the hormones and the, um, the life experience, you know, it's such a challenging time, but most people I say, can you remember when you were first depressed? Can you remember when you were first anxious? I'd say 90% of them say 12, 13 middle school. Mm -hmm. And so it's usually around puberty. I've always wanted to do a study on puberty and um, the onset of addiction. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good one. I would probably do that if I weren't so lazy. (laughs) You were not lazy. Did you hear that intro? (laughs) I I picked up a major addiction as a teenage boy, but it wasn't substance abuse, I can assure you. But um, I I took more showers between 13 and 16 than I have probably my entire life combined. (laughs) Would you say it was an addiction or would you say it was like, appropriate teenage red-blooded American thing. Well, you know, little column A, little column B. <laughs> because I think that's pretty common for that age. Yeah. No, it, no, it is. That's, that's, you know, but so I, I know, but, um, so, so it would be like, they were doing that and like dropping out of school to do it or, um, not ever speaking to people to do it. You know what I mean? Or doing it until they were in pain or things like that. I mean, kids that do it 10, 20 times a day, it doesn't mean they're addicted. That's, that's their age. Is there, is there a difference between somebody who has the disease, the, the addiction disease and somebody who is just, um, you know, taking their, their partying a little too far? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my husband always says he drank like a fish in college, which I still think is kind of wimpy, but like, (laughs) like I'll say to him, he'll say, babe, I drank like a fish in college. I just quit. I don't know why you didn't quit. And I'm like, really? Did you ever lose a job? And he goes, well, no, of course not. I go, well, did you ever drop out of college? And he goes, well, of course not. I said, did you ever fake your graduation? He goes, of course not. I go, yeah, you didn't drink like a fish. You drank like a (laughs) fish. All right, so let's just pump the brakes right there. Did you did you say fake your graduation? Yes, from college. Okay, let's hear it. 
Okay, so I it was I went to college for three years and three quarters. And my last quarter, I met this person and this guy, of course, and he said, you know, he dropped out of college when he only had one quarter left to go. And I thought I could do that because, I, you know, that sounded like such a great idea. So then I met somebody else and he said, let's go to the Bahamas. And so I took the money from my college fund and went to the Bahamas with this guy. And um, my parents showed up at my college graduation. <gasps> and my dad was a teacher for 38 years and he only missed two days of work and one was to show up for my college graduation that I wasn't at and oh like my family was there everybody was there and two was to take me to rehab wow so did they show up and and you weren't there and then like did you pretend that you had been or what I said you missed it you just didn't see me so when I really truly graduated from college I printed a copy of my diploma and then I wrote notes on the back of it and sent it to all the people that I lied to that I graduated from college when I really didn't. Whoa. That's hardcore. Oh, that's like nothing. We can talk all day about the <laughs> stuff that this disease will get me to do. I mean, I am definitely one of those people that, you know, people say to me, well, you were so young when you got sober, six. And if you were... Um, maybe you could drink now. You know what I mean? Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. And I always say, yeah, but why would I take that chance? I mean, mm. so let's say I'm not an alcoholic. I was just super young and I was partying my brains out and now I could drink, you know, would it really be worth throwing the potential to throw my entire life away and everything mm. built in my career and my company and my family and my husband and my friends and my clients I mean, I feel like any, you went 32 years without it. I'm pretty sure you, you're going to be able to continue to push on. I hope so. I hope so. I always have a healthy fear of it, you know, because when people come to me and they say, I got this, I don't even want to drink anymore. It scares me because I go, you should have a healthy fear of this. It's a very dangerous disease. We people die over it all the time. And I think that healthy fear is what's kept me sober for 32 years. Keeps you from being overconfident, huh? Yes. Yes. I think overconfidence is a big relapse trigger. So you're in recovery. Is. I am not. <laughs> is there a, a, and this is a question that I've been wanting to ask for a while because I, I truly and genuinely wonder, is there a proper etiquette for being in a social situation? Like if I want to have a drink, is that rude if we're at dinner no, but it, it's not, it's not rude at all. Like I think of it like this. If I were allergic to peaches and I came over your house and you were like, Deanna, I'm serving peach pie. I wouldn't be like, nobody can have peach pie. I'm allergic. Get it out of the house. I would just be like, okay, well, do you have any ice cream? Because I, I don't eat pe peach pie. But yeah, that makes, that makes sense. But you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the person that's like rub it. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's awkward for me because I feel like I can't, I can't act the way that I would normally act because I don't want to, because I don't want to do something that could set off my friend or person that I'm in the social setting with. I think that's worse. I think you being awkward and not just having a drink would make me more uncomfortable than you being like, I'm not going to drink tonight because you're not drinking and make an issue of it. If you like my husband drinks, you know, not very much. He's like I said, he's kind of wimpy, but um, <laughs> him and his friends will go out, you know, and they'll all have a beer. I've never had a beer in my life. 
So I don't understand it, but it doesn't bother me at all. But I think if they weren't drinking because I was there and they weren't enjoying themselves, that would make me feel awkward. But you know what else I wanted to say, Jared, I think that it's super respectful and nice to ask. Like people have said to me a million times, do you mind if I have a drink? I'm like, absolutely not. Please don't pull out any cocaine or heroin. But if you want to have a drink, I'm totally okay with that. (laughs) You know your limits. I know my limits. I always say I feel bad for people that alcohol is their drug of choice. I mean, can you imagine if like you were at the grocery store and you had to walk down the heroin aisle? I would be like, uh, I need to leave the grocery store. If you were like at a dinner party and they were passing around a tray of cocaine, I would be like, um, I can't stay at this dinner party. So I think people that alcohol is their drug of choice have it especially difficult because it's so widely accepted in our culture. Oh, absolutely. Now you mentioned a genetic component to addiction. Yes. And and that's highly controversial, by the way. Is it really? Yeah, we used to, everybody used to believe that there's genetics to it. But, you know, now some really famous people that I have a lot of respect for who've done a ton of research, especially Dr. Gabor Mate, he is probably my favorite researcher and like the person right now to go to. He's going to be in the history books for studying addiction. He's amazing. He wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And what that means is um, the Buddhists call addiction the hungry ghost. Isn't that a great analogy? Mm, I mean, you think about like, hungry ghost inside of you. That's addiction. So he he wrote this beautiful, like really entertaining, phenomenal, well-written, well-researched book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He doesn't believe it's genetic. And like everything else he says, I think is biblical. You know, he's amazing. But I do still see a genetic component. It's just to, if you sit down and do a genogram with somebody and look at their family history, there are so few people that don't have it in their family. So few addicts. Hmm. And I've been doing this for about 23 years. So I've seen a lot of genograms where people come and they write down like what happened in their family and their grandparents family and backward men like nine times out of ten there's a huge history of either alcohol abuse food abuse drug abuse um sex abuse gambling it's all kind of thing you know yeah but obviously you have the people that'll argue that you're just a product of your environment as well well, I agree with that too, but I have seen um, people that like brother and sister grew up in the exact same house or twins grew up in the exact same house and one is a complete addict and one is not. Yeah, I, I that makes sense. I remember when I was about 16 or 17, um, I was, you know, starting to hang out with my friends a little later at night and my dad pulled me aside and said, listen, I know you're a kid, you know, you're going to... But you have to be aware of the fact that on your mother's side of the family, you have this gene. My mom was an addict. Um, she was in recovery before she passed away from cancer. So, you know, she was able to, but it, it runs strong in that side of the family. And when he said that, that really kind of sunk into me. And oddly enough, like three hours later, I'm on the phone with my mom. And she's talking to me about what my plans are for the night. And I told her that a bunch of guys from work were having a card game and I was going to go play poker. And she says, now, listen, uh, that's fine, but I want you to be careful because gambling runs in your father's side of the family. And yeah. it's something. And I remember hanging up the phone and being like, man, am I fucked? Like, <laughs> how, 
So um, luckily I was able... Luckily, I was able to avoid both, so I don't know how it works out. But I do definitely agree that um, there has to be some sort of gene or some sort of genetic uh, thing that, that that will point out certain genes that they believe is a genetic predisposition. Like I said, Mate doesn't believe in it, and I believe everything else he says. But this part, I think, is missing. I think it's a it's a combination of genetics and environment both mm-hmm. what I, role do you think trauma plays in addiction oh my gosh trauma is just i'd say trauma is like 80 percent. wow i'd say 10 percent is genetic 10 percent is environment 80 percent is trauma wow that's heavy it's really true because you know some people never get a chance to deal with and i mean i feel like i you know me kelly you know i love my job it's just my, you know, probably too much. I love my job. <laughs> I see people all the time and they say, this is the first time I've ever told anyone this. And I feel so honored and privileged that they're willing to tell it to me. But in the same sentence, it's terrifying to me and so sad that they've spent all these years never talking about it. And just every time it starts to come up a little bit, just pouring some alcohol on it or some drugs or some gambling or some sex or some you know, yeah, shopping or, you know what else I think is such a huge addiction right now that not many people are looking at is our phones. Oh my gosh. I mean, I see people and like, I have friends that at a dinner party will not get off their phone or staring at it the entire time. And then I also witness people will like, well, I'll be sitting around and like jonesing to check their phone. <laughs> Needing a fix. Yeah. And then they finally look at it when there's a break or somebody walks to the bathroom or something. And then they, everybody gets it and looks at it. And it's like (gasps) that feeling that Jared was talking about getting the energy drink. Yeah. So clearly when someone's facing their addiction and working toward their recovery, they really need to then be focused on whole mind, body and spirit, right? Like, is it possible to, to have a, a successful recovery program without all of those elements? Well, another one of my favorite writers is Robin Norwood. And she says, um, it's easy. I mean, it's possible to be in recovery without a spiritual program. It's like walking up high, walking uphill backwards in high heel. Mm. It's possible, but it's so much easier to turn around and take off your high heels. like a religious program or a God program. I mean, any sort of spirituality, like meditating, hiking, getting in nature, those kind of spiritual things. I think those things are the ticket to, I think community and spirituality are the ticket to long-term sobriety. Mm. I remember you told me one time that connection was the opposite of addiction. And the more I think about that, the more I think about um, addiction and recovery, and especially with the pandemic and how it has isolated so many people. It's so true. That sense of community, that connection is so important. And that's probably why, you know, these 12-step programs are so essential as well, or some type of a program, because that does give you community. And then the thing that I can appreciate about a 12-step program is that it does address body, mind, and spirit. Right. Like the whole program of it, the whole 12-step thing is going to address your body, your mind, and your spirit. Yeah. That's so key. I've had people come in and say, you know, my doctor told me that I wouldn't like AA because it's too religious. I'm always shocked 
because in my experience and my education, I never saw it as religious at all. And the people who are religious are all different religions. Yeah. That was kind of surprising to me when people don't know that it's a very open program and lots of atheists are in 12 step programs. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's more about, about spirituality than religion, about connecting some to some sort of higher power, whether it's, you know, nature or something inside of you or God or whatever it's, you know, God as you understand him to be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do get turned off by that because they, they think they know what they're going to encounter when it comes to that spiritual aspect in a 12 step program. But the idea of like the, they were going like, you know, there's so much religious abuse in America today. And if somebody grew up with religious abuse and the shaming and the toxic Mm. toxicity and, you know, on it's triggering. Yeah. They're not going to want to hear the word. And you know, they use the word God in 12 step, but they wrote that stuff in 1939. Yeah. They didn't have like go out in nature or go for a hike or that wasn't really the way we thought about spirituality in 1939. Yeah. Might have been no. I could be wrong on that. But it was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a while ago. Now, obviously one of the other focuses of our podcast is on music. And a lot of times we talk about how the specific challenges of being in the entertainment industry and struggling with addiction or maintaining sobriety. And obviously that's one, a big reason for why we want to open Bradley's house to have a place that specifically addresses that for people in the music industry. Um, can you touch a little bit on some of those unique struggles and so that any, any musicians that are listening that maybe are struggling either with their addiction or, or are currently in recovery can get a little bit more understanding of why there's so much more for someone in the entertainment industry or someone who's very visible in the public? Well, you know, my husband comes from a very famous musical family. Yes. And um, there's a lot of addiction in his family. People have written books about it. And, you know, it was a lot of trauma for him watching people be addicts in his family, he's, which is why he's such a lightweight. But I think <laughs> one of the biggest problems that he's going to kill me when he listens to it. <laughs> you called him a wimp? two or three times and now a lightweight only about his drinking. Like yes, I no. it earlier, he could get in a bar fight. He'd be yeah. good. But yeah. He, I know you adore him. I do adore him. But I think one of the main things is that, you know, we, um, what did you say again? I just lost it. Oh, about how it's a unique challenge for people in the entertainment industry, people that are visible. Right, for sure. I think one of the biggest problems is that they move too fast. Like I have mm. worked with different types of celebrities and entertain people in the entertainment industry and professional athletes. And, you know, I go on the Dr. Phil show a lot and meet people. And I think the biggest problem is they go back too fast. Like in order to develop, develop long-term sobriety, you got to have a foundation. Right. So I asked you to build a house what would be the most important part of your house? Definitely the foundation. Right. So if you get sober and you're doing really well for 30 days and then you go back on tour, it's not a good idea. You know, around you all the time, you're going to be triggered. They're going to be the same people. I tell everybody, if you really want a shot at long-term sobriety, you should spend a whole year building a foundation. Because the people who I know who spent a whole year building a foundation, working on the body, mind, and spirit, and just, you know, getting a get well job, 
not really focusing on career right now. Those are the people that made it through law school. Those are the people that made it through PhDs. Those are the people that made it through going back to work as in, in the entertainment industry, going back to work as musicians. They took a whole year off. And you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, I'm going to miss so much in a year. But you're really not. Because what you're gaining is the rest of your life. Mm. And taking control of your life, too. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's very powerful. I, I've definitely seen that played out in, in people that I know, <clears throat> excuse me, in people that I know. And, um, and it is hard. There's, there's so many challenges in the music industry because of, you know, the environment and the drugs and the alcohol and partying and all that kind of stuff. But as you said, it's hard to pull yourself out of that because you don't want to lose momentum in your career. Right. Lose your audience. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, then you really have lost your career. <laughs> yes, exactly. 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 But people so, like don't really like to look at how serious this disease is and how life threatening and horrific, which I know that you're very aware of. Yeah. I had a client's mom call me and said, I'm really worried about his eating. I was like, I don't give a fuck if he eats Cheetos all day, every day. He's not <laughs> heroin. Yeah. Priorities straight. Right. It's all relative. I mean, seriously, he can work on his eating in a year, but right yeah. now I just really want him to not shoot heroin. Can we just do that? <laughs> Let's focus on one thing at a time. Yeah. But, you know, I think for musicians, it's doubly hard. I, I think the musicians who I've known, I've known, I know, I won't say I have a very good friend, a couple, two really good friends who are pretty popular musicians. And they're both in recovery for a long time. Like one is probably 32 years like me and we all got sober together. And I guess the other one's around 32 years too. We all got sober together in the same area in Costa Mesa and hung out together and ran around as young, sober people. Well, they happened to make it really big in the music, music industry. And um, they took sober people with them on tour. Mm. They surrounded themselves with sober people. They had no partying on the bus. And, um, they, they really made sure to put their sobriety first. I mean, you have to treat your sobriety like a brand new baby. You have to like protect it, cherish it. And everyone thinks like, it'll be fine. I'll be fine. I don't even drink anymore. I'm good. I don't even do drugs anymore. It's not, if it was that simple, everybody would do it. Right. And that's that overconfidence you were talking about too. Exactly. Yeah. So we mentioned 12 step programs. What are some other tools that you think are, are helpful as a general rule in recovery? I really, well, obviously I, I'm a big com uh, fan of therapy. I think that, yes, <laughs> I think that most people could change their lives with a year of therapy. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Without a lot of issues or whatever, they could just spend some time in therapy, getting to know themselves and find out what they want out of life and really go after things that are important to them that they've been putting aside. So I think therapy, I also, I'm a big believer in diet and exercise, for, especially for addicts, because we're just so, you know, people say addicts are so overly sensitive. We are so overly sensitive. We're sensitive to everything. So if we're just eating crap and drink, you know, drinking crap and not exercising, and I'm not saying like you have to be a workout fiend, just like go for a walk, but if you're not moving your body in some form or another, like eating some sort of healthy diet, I think it's really hard 
to like change your lifestyle. And, you know, one of the things that Rob Norwood says in her book is that nature doesn't like a vacuum. Mm. Nature doesn't like a vacuum and the law of physics, nature doesn't like a vacuum. So in the real world, if I'm going to take all those drugs and alcohol away, what am I going to replace it with? Right. So if you replace it with going for a walk every day and eating one extra vegetable, you know, I always say start small. And um, then then you can focus on that instead of the drugs and alcohol. This is amazing Absolutely. advice. I'm, play, I'm playing this for my children. <laughs> I'm going to get ahead of the game and I'm going to be like, now see if – you guys don't do the right things and you, you know, go down this road of addiction, you're going to have to fucking exercise and eat vegetables. So that's <laughs> no, oh my gosh. So I think that's a good, this is good preventative maintenance as well. As much as you're saying people that are already in need to do that, I can use it as fair warning and be like, look, you guys play video games a lot and you know, you, you don't like vegetables. This could be your future if you don't make the right choices now. You know, my oldest son was, he's going to kill me too when he hears this. He was so addicted to video games that we had to put him in a room with a lock on the door and he hacked that lock. Wow. 12 years old. Well, first we put this machine on the video games that it would turn the video games on after two hours, turn them off. So he'd yeah. be playing and it would just shut down. So I walk into the video game room and he's playing for like six hours. And I go, how have you been in here all day? And he goes, mom, we hacked that like the first week. <laughs> <laughs> so then we bought this lock for the door then they hacked that so then we got the little code lock for the door and they would sit around the corner and try and watch us put the code in so now we had to change the code every three days because they were at an age where their full frontal lobe was not developed and they could not moderate themselves with video games now i tell parents that all the time and rarely do they listen but children cannot moderate themselves with video games. Their full frontal lobe is not developed. They don't have the editing skills. So you have to moderate that. Change that lock every three days. Do whatever it takes. Oh, That's yeah. So, so I do, you know, it's Christmas break. So the kids are home. And uh, I've got a nine-year-old and a soon-to-be 13-year-old. And I took them off the video games the other day and I said, you know, let's do something else. You guys got a bunch of art kits and different things. Do something else. Um, and, uh, and they set up the stuff and they started kind of getting into it. And then the 13 year old knocked the nine year old's picture off the table. He called him a fucking asshole. They began fist fighting in the middle of the kitchen. And I was like, please go play Fortnite. I give up. It's fine. You guys have the video games. I don't, I'll, I'll try again tomorrow, but you guys won today. And then they go back to their separate areas and they get on their video games and then they, you know, well, they do what they, they do. Is that we use the screen for the babysitter and I'm not saying I haven't done it and I'm not saying, you know, that it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, you put your kids in front of a screen and you've got a couple hours to get stuff done, to do what you want, relax, and you don't even have to think about it. But you really have to like proactively monitor their screen time. We did a thing where we said no video games between Monday and Thursday. They could play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I think we had a, like a four-hour limit on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But they just would not do their homework if I let them play video games between Monday and Thursday. And I, it was suggested to me by another therapist and I tried it and it, it really helped a lot. 
I was talking with someone the other day about video games and uh, the subject of Atari came up, which is the first video game that Brad and I had. And no joke, we could sit there and play Pong for six hours straight. Pong! Like, the most basic, unimpressive game. Can you imagine now? No, yeah, no, that's crazy. I would never leave the room. Acting with people all over the world. You know, there are children who have died in Korea because they didn't get up to eat or drink <gasps> because they were playing video games. They died no. malnourishment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That could that could easily be one of my kids. Uh like Mine too. They, they are just fully addicted. Yeah, they are so addicted. Like I said, they cannot moderate their own their full frontal lobes are not developed they just can't do it you have to do it for them and it seems like oh they'll grow out of it oh da 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 da. i remember we were at a party one time and they had one of those game trucks at the party have you seen those oh yeah and all the kids were getting bored and they all were come out and throwing a football and stuff and i said where's my son and i went and he was the only kid with the game truck people there was three game truck guys and him playing video games and all the other <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and i was like oh shit <laughs> i gotta do something is it fair to say that there are that you can have an addiction that's not necessarily a problem like i mean you know it seems to, like you know Jarrett with his energy drinks or you know the majority of people in this country with coffee you know like it, that's an addiction for sure that caffeine addiction but as long as it's not getting in the way of your life or keeping you from living the way you want to live, it's still an addiction, but just not in the right. negative sense. Right. And, you know, people can be addicted to working out and they say, well, that's such a good thing. How can it? Well, there are people who work out through injuries. You know, they'll get injured mm. and they'll keep working out because they're so addicted they can't stop. That's when it becomes a problem. But because I have such an addictive personality, I choose to put addictive things in my life like exercise, um, Netflix, things that are harmless, you know? Right. Um, our producer just messaged me. She said functional addiction. Oh, interesting. That's a good term. I like that. Functional addictioning. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, because I functionally am addicted to coffee or caffeine. Right. You know, I, I can make it through the day. I don't, um, I don't lose jobs or friendships or go to jail or have sex with people I don't know or things like that. Or fake graduations. <laughs> or fake graduations for um, coffee, but I'm addicted for sure. Same with yeah. sugar. I used to have a big sign in my office that said sugar is a drug. <laughs> so many people gave me so much backlash about that. They did not want to think of their sugar intake as addictive. Oh, touched a nerve there. Yeah, I, yeah. Pro I, I probably also wouldn't have sex with a stranger for an energy drink, maybe. <laughs> you might. Maybe. I think you might. I like, think the jury's I, I, still out on that one, Jared. All right. I wouldn't make eye contact. <laughs> Kiss on the lips. How about that? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, if, if you don't make eye contact, you're just completing a task. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of sex workers say you don't kiss on the lips because then it's not intimate. Yeah, that's what Julia Roberts said in Pretty Woman. Right. That's where we all learned. Right. <laughs> you got to not kiss on the lips, Jared. Just get the drink. Close your eyes. <laughs> do what you got to do. Think of the laundry. Right. 
Right. It's what I'm just saying. I, I'm, I said I probably wouldn't, maybe. <laughs> most, most of the time. Mostly. Well, I think, um, one of the, one of my favorite things about you, Deanna, is that you are so transparent about, you know, your struggles and, and it just, for me, it makes you so relatable. And that's what I've always told you. You know, I've, I've, over my lifetime, I've seen other therapists, but I've never felt like I could completely be open. But because you are so just, just, you just kind of lay it all out there. It allows other people to be the same. And I think that's really what I strive for in my work with the foundation and in this podcast and, and just, you know, with people in general is just being, being transparent, being honest and being open so that we can all realize that we're not all that different and that we all have struggles and, and we don't have to pretend so that we, you know, we can lift each other up that way and, and strengthen that sense of community. So I want to thank you for modeling that. What a beautiful way to put it. I love your words, Kelly. You're so articulate. Thank and I, you. My clients, I always say, um, I spend so much time with my clients and I say, if I'm not going to be vulnerable, why? If I'm not going to, like, why should you trust me if I don't trust you with my stuff? Exactly. So I'm always the first one to be vulnerable. I think it's a really good role modeling tool too. You know, it's very controversial in psychology, whether you should self-disclose anything about yourself. You know, old school psychologists, they don't self-disclose at all. They don't tell you anything about their lives. I think I told you about this therapist I was in therapy with for seven years. Mm -hmm. He never told me one thing about himself. And finally, like towards the end, I said, you know, you never told me about yourself. And then he told me a story about how this bear ran out next to his car. And I was like, <laughs> I don't really care about the bear in your car. I mean, have you ever slammed heroin? I <laughs> Really not what you were looking for. But it was funny that he really thought that was, I mean, he was so cool. But <laughs> you, you ever maybe jerked the guy off for a Red Bull? <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear because that would have made me feel more comfortable to talk about my own path. Yeah. But no, he was like telling me about this bear ran up next to his car. <laughs> he might have had some intimacy problems, some vulnerability issues. But but the people who I respect the most are very um disclose a lot quite a bit with their clients. And I my favorite all-time professor ever seems Dr. Michael Elliott and he practices in Santa Barbara and he said disclose all over the place. Just be in the room. Mm. It's more important that you get the work done, that you help this person. Like I wouldn't disclose like, oh, Kelly, I need your help or Jared, right. I can help with this. But I might, you know, I think if I talk about my stuff, you're going to feel better, safer talking about your stuff. And like I said, right. why would you risk being vulnerable with me when I won't be vulnerable with you? Yeah, no, it really does make a huge difference. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of flack for this because it's yeah. so controversial in the psychology world. You know, I think people will always find something to complain about, but the, the reality of what you do is, you know, you, you can see the fruit in the people that you work with and in the lives that are changed That's and true. impacted. So fuck them. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't feel like, I don't feel bad saying, I know that I'm really good at what I do because, um, everybody's good at something. Like I suck at tennis. I'm just like, <laughs> Worst tennis player. Nobody ever wants to be my doubles partner, but I love it. So I play tennis all the time. And like everyone's like, oh, who has to play with her? She's so cool. But 
So everybody's good at something. And this just happens to be my gift. And I think that what I do with this gift is how I return the favor of sobriety back to the universe. Like the universe gave me this gift of sobriety. So how I pay back that gift and how I, what I gift to the universe is what I do with it. And what I do with it is I have a ton of fun. I just like to have so much fun with my clients. We just laugh all the time. We say the craziest stuff. Oh my gosh. This is true. I can attest to that. Um, Anna just pointed out that, that there's a theory that you shouldn't be an addiction counselor unless you have been in addiction. And whether or not that holds true for everybody, I can say that there are, I have, I have personally known people in recovery that intentionally sought out a therapist who was in recovery because they didn't feel that someone who had never been there could truly understand what they were going through. Yeah, that's, well, there are two sides to that coin. One of the sides is, um, could you treat cancer as an oncologist if you've never had cancer? Well, sure. Yeah. So that's one of the sides of it. That's like the, if we're playing devil's advocate, the other side of it is, um, I, you know, I do a lot of work with sex trafficking. Mm-hmm kind of my thing is to help. And I didn't want it to be my thing. It just fell in my lap and I've been doing it for a long time and I'm really devoted and passionate about it. And I've talked about different sex work, different things that have happened in my life. And I remember, I'll never forget. I was working with this girl who was kidnapped at the age of 19. She never had a boyfriend. She was held as a sex trafficking in Georgia. Wow. um, Six months. Wow. Told her this story about like this crazy thing that happened to me. I'm not going to tell the story because my kids could listen to this, but this crazy thing that happened to me. And she just looked at me and she said, I feel like you don't think I'm disgusting anymore. Mm. And I just like started crying. And I was like, I never thought you were disgusting. And she said, I guess we both have made some mistakes. And that's right there at that moment when I knew I was doing the right thing. Absolutely. Well, and because recovery is a very different thing, so much more participatory than cancer. Like if I have cancer, there's only so much that I can do. You know, obviously there there are things that I can do, but there's only so much I can do. So having an oncologist who's never had cancer, I really don't care. I don't give a shit if he's ever had cancer as long as he knows how to treat it. Yeah. But But I think when it comes to emotions and all these things that we feel guilt and shame about and and are difficult to talk about and the traumas and, and it's so hard to, to feel comfortable speaking about those things. If you think that the person that you're telling these things to won't truly understand. And I think that's, that's where so much of that comes from. It's that, that guilt and shame and being able to overcome that and talk about the things that, that are, are causing you to self-medicate or maybe contributing to it. You know, being able to say those things to somebody that, you know, is inside going, yep, been there, done that is, it makes a big difference. Like I have slept in my car, you know, and my clients know that I've slept in my car and they, they, you know, they look at me in the eye and they know that I know where they've been and they know that I faked my graduation. And I mean, I could tell lots of other horrible stories like that. And, um, I, you know, I know that it brings them some peace. It really does. Well, you are, by far one of my absolute most favorite people in the world. And I can guarantee 
that you are now Anna's as well, because she's been texting me this whole time. And I'm sure you will be as people listen to this. And I hope, I hope the biggest thing that people take away from this is a sense of compassion, both for what other people are going through and what they themselves are going through. Because if we can be more compassionate towards ourselves, then, then I think that opens the way for healing and recovery as well. 100%. But I do want to add that I'd like to give Jared a free hour just to do some research on his. <laughs> I think listen. you're going to need way more than an hour. Yeah. That's see, That's why I don't do it. Like, listen, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm like super familiar with therapy, but I've seen every episode of Dr. Katz. I've seen every episode of The Sopranos. Okay. So- <laughs> I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm not to your level, but like, no, I, um, I, I, uh, it would be, it would be an interesting hour for, for everybody. And, uh, it's, it would be one of those things where I'd be like, man, that was really cool. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And then next thing you know, you got me exercising and eating vegetables and I, let's just, let's just keep it to the podcast. Let's keep it light. Let's just slow on back. Dr. D, let's just slow your roll. Come on, Dak. Don't you know? I uh my son my son drew a picture of me and him uh sitting at the table playing a game and it was like a Father's Day present and was in my office and we sold a car to a uh to a therapist and this one of my salesmen used my office and finished up the deal and um the the doctor laughed he bought a few cars from us and i walked in the office i sat down and we started talking about the deal and he goes hey man he uh he mentioned your picture Ah. And, and i said oh yeah what did he what did he mention he goes he just uh he mentioned how it was interesting how your son drew it from an aerial point of view. Like, look, basically your kid's fucked up, man. And, uh, and we had a good laugh and he was just kidding. But, but, uh, I took that picture out of my office ever since then. And I was like, these, you gotta be careful. These things, they know things. I think it's really not in good taste to like, people always say, are you analyzing me? And I'm like, no, I'm really tired and I'm not analyzing you. I'm actually shopping online, you know, but <laughs> I think it's in really bad taste to give unsolicited advice. Yes. Isn't it hard for yeah. you not to? Not to be that though, because that's who you are. Like I'm always selling something to somebody and I've had so many people in my personal life be like, Whoa, Hey, stop. I'm not a customer. And I'm like, I'm like, well, just because I'm using yes questions on you doesn't mean I'm just saying that it would be really cool if you did go and get ice cream. Right. Yeah. Stop doing that. So like, isn't it difficult for you not to do that? Like, I I don't know. Well, part, you know, being a psychologist, you get to go to school for seven and a half years post. That's after your undergrad. So you get a lot of training in turning it off. You know, I don't do it. My son, when he was three years old, I was saying something to him and he said, mommy, don't therapy me. (laughs) Therapy. Don't therapy me. And I was like, oh my God, he's three years old. He already knows. I'm like trying to, like he knows what's going on already. Yeah, that's good. It's so cute. And then uh, one time we were sitting in the kitchen, he was probably eight years old. And I was telling him a story about my day and he goes, say more about that. And I go, Oh my God. I go, what did you say? And he goes, I said, say more about that, mom. I go, 
why did you say that? <laughs> he goes, that's what you always say, mom. Say more about that. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, see, so you, you have little tricks. Like here's a trick that I learned. I'll share this with all of our listeners as well. Um, it's this, it's the craziest thing in the world because it's a very simple phrase. But if you ever want to get information from somebody, you just say this simple word. Hey, listen, off the record, where'd you really go to get that? And for some reason, when you say off the record, people are just like, all right, I went and bought it at the other dealership from Jim, the salesman. And I'm just like, you motherfucker, like what? But they didn't want to give me any of the information until I asked them to tell me off the record. Off the record, people open up. It's a trick. I don't know why, but it works. Use that. Use that. You watch. I like it. I think that's the Watergate effect. Yeah. Off the record. Well, and you know, I do think there's something to be said for just having a true gift for it, too. Because right before we started recording... Jarrett said, you know, I probably won't say a whole lot during this interview. We'll just kind of let Kelly take the reins and da da da. Because, you know, he figured we're talking with a therapist. He's not going to have much to say. I think we kind of proved him wrong there. I'm pretty good at getting people to open up. <laughs> just to find out what's going on. In a I'm, different- just, I'm just horrible at shutting up. That's good. That's <laughs> my job so easy. I love clients like you. They come in and they just talk, talk, talk. And I'm like, uh, sometimes people will come in and they will talk for a full hour. And I literally, I'm not kidding you, will not say one word. And they'll get up and they'll go, I feel so much better. Thank you for this session. And I'm like, (laughs) you're welcome. (laughs) And I honestly, I swear to God, did not say one word. Wow. I just listen to them. I just sit there and nod and listen to them. And then they get up and say, wow, this was great. I feel so much better. I'll see you next week. And I go, okay. Nice to be heard. Yeah, I think so many of us spent most of our lives being invalidated. You know, mm. when you're a kid and you say, I'm cold, you're not cold, put on a jacket. I'm, I'm so tired. You're not tired. Have some, have, you know, wake up, get up, sit up straight. All these mm. invalidations. Like if I were going to come up with a f- formula to make somebody crazy, I would say invalidate them all the time. If they oh. say you're tired, you're not tired. I'm cold. You're not cold. It's warm day outside. What are you talking about? Just continue to invalidate them and that will make them crazy. So I think Mm -hmm. the most important thing a therapist can do is validate you. Like even if you say um, something they don't agree with, if you say like, I, you know, I, I want to kill myself. I, I can validate that by saying, it sounds like you're in a lot of pain Mm -hmm. instead of, you don't want to kill yourself. That's not a good idea. Wow. Wow. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just all sit with that for a second. <laughs> yeah, just let that marinate to all yeah. of our listeners out there. What do you What do you guys think of that? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a that's a great point. Yeah, see, this is why I don't want a free hour. You're just gonna mess my head up more, and then it's gonna take twelve <laughs> years. You're gonna you're gonna tap into some shit that I listen. I've done a good job at burying stuff away, right? Like it's gone. I don't know about it. You, I can't be having you tap into it. Drinks on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm drowning it in energy drinks. There's a psychologist named Sean Aker and he says, Will, you know, if you come into if you come into therapy, we either hope you're depressed or you have a, a diagnosis. Hopefully both, because then we can you have to keep coming back. If you come in telling us we have one problem, we'll send you away telling you of ten. Because <laughs> we get you every 
Well, I think I, I think it's great that you know you can sit there for an hour and just listen to somebody, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that need that. It makes me think all the time. I worked with this bitter old salesman, and the one day I literally spit coffee out because he said, uh, "I don't know what the beginning of the conversation was, but I just hear him as he turned the corner, and he goes, "Yeah, you should have met my ex-wife. She had two mouths and one ear, and." Uh, <laughs> To me, it was just the funniest thing. And all he ever did was complain about his ex-wife. But to hear that one, I just laughed so hard. And, uh, and I thought to myself, poor Johnny, just, you know, he probably, he probably hadn't gotten hurt in years. Or so. Nobody's ever said it's okay to feel that way. Even if I don't agree, it's okay. And you know, like I was going to say, Jared, it's such a valuable, valuable tool for your children. Like if yeah. that take anything away from this being a parent validate everything even if they're wrong you can validate that they're experiencing it it doesn't mean they don't have consequences i totally you know i tell my kids all the time you have every right to get up in the middle of the night and sneak and play video games you will suffer the consequences but you have every right to do that see this is good advice for me because i am used to um to, you know, minimal, minimalizing things like, oh, that's not really, it's not that bad. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, that, that hasn't gotten me very far. Um, so maybe, maybe the validating will be a, a better, a better tool. Yeah. It, it's amazing when I tell people you can do that. Like people say to me, I want to kill myself and they'll say it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I'll say, you have every right to kill yourself. And they never say it again. Hmm. Because I just, I didn't try to be heard. I had a woman come in, one of my famous people, and she was in psychosis and meth induced psychosis. And she kept saying, I need to have a, um, I need a bodyguard. I need a bodyguard. And I was like, oh my God, this bitch doesn't need a bodyguard. (laughs) Shut up and listen to me. She kept saying on and on. I need a bodyguard. I need a bodyguard. We could not get anything done. She couldn't stop talking about the bodyguard. So about halfway through the session, I go over to my computer and I look up a bodyguard and print it out. And I said, if you listen to me, we'll call after at the end of the session. She said, okay. And she never talked about it again. Wow. Because I had been invalidating her the entire session. Mm. You don't need a bodyguard. When I just said, okay, here's a paper for a bodyguard. Here's a number. Let's call them. She just never talked about it again. And we never called them. Wow. Funny story about her was, she was married to a very famous celebrity and she kept telling me, somebody's following me. Somebody's following me. And I was like, oh my God, she's in so much psychosis. Nobody is following you. So we go to court and I had to go to court with her. And um, the ex is in court says, well, I had somebody following her while she was nope. in town. <laughs> and I've been telling her the whole time, no one's following you. No one's following you. <laughs> You're in psychosis. <laughs> I know better. If somebody says they're being followed, I'm like, they, that could be true. Oh, isn't that funny? And he said, "Yeah, I had somebody follow her over. She was in rehab." And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> well, Deanna, thank you for spending the last hour just proving everything that I said in my introduction to be true. You are absolutely wonderful. You're brilliant. You're beautiful. You're compassionate. You're funny and. You have helped a lot of people and you continue to do so when you don't need to. And so thank you for that. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us. Absolutely. Kelly, can I just say one more thing? You know what I always tell you? It takes one to know one. (laughs) 
Thank you. So if people want to know more about New Method Wellness, you have a website, right? NewMethodWellness.com. Yeah, Dr. Phil, like the, the cameraman and Dr. Phil hates me. So if I ever get an awkward, horrible angle, he'll shoot it. <laughs> if you want a good laugh, go on the New Method Wellness website and watch me on Dr. Phil. That's awful. I don't think you have a bad angle, Deanna, but all right. Go watch the show. You'll be like, okay, you were right. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thank you for starting our year off on such a, what a positive joy. note. And I really liked meeting Jared and Anna. That was great. They're fabulous too. Well, thank you so much. We sure appreciate you. Absolutely. Take care. Happy New Year. Thank you. Well, Kelly, I don't think we could have started the new year out 2022 at Bradley's house any better than we just did. Holy shit, was that awesome. I love her so much. And I really, really seriously been looking forward to this. And she absolutely did not disappoint. She's so fabulous. And yeah, I do think it's a great way to start the year. And I hope everybody hears, you know, the message in there that, that we're all human. We're all dealing with stuff. Let's just, you know, love each other, talk about it, be open, get through it. And, and uh, I think everyone will have a better year for it. Yeah, I mean, just the simple fact that there's somebody that, you know, went through, she faked her college graduation. And, you know, when you're, you're doing that kind of stuff, you're, you're in rough shape. And now here she is a doctor on the Dr. Phil show and doing all these amazing things, helping out all of these different people. It's just, it goes to show you that, that, you know, you, we can recover. It's true. And she's, she's changing lives and she doesn't need to be doing it. That's the crazy part is that she, you know, is one of those people that does it because she wants to, and because she's good at it and because she feels compelled to, to help people. And that makes me love her that much more. Yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing. And I certainly look forward to having her back. Um, and guys, you know, uh, we hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. You know why we're doing it, guys. We're doing it because we're raising funds to open Bradley's house. The org is the website. That's where you can go and check out all the information about the Noel Family Foundation and Bradley's house. Uh, of course, you can follow us uh, on the Bradley's house page uh, on Facebook, the Noel Family Foundation everywhere on social media, and um, make sure that you guys look in the description of the show below and you get the link tree that'll get you to all things Noel Family Foundation. You guys can pick up a t-shirt, hoodie, pin, lots of cool stuff going on. Are there hoodies yet, Kelly? There are. In fact, I just got a whole shipment of them. Haven't gotten them up on the site yet because I need to go through and just make sure we have all the right numbers and sizes and inventory before I put it on there. But yes, we, we have lots of hoodies now. Excellent. And uh, <laughs> of, of course, the Noel Family Foundation is going to be out at Cali Vibes. So if you guys are in Long Beach and you're coming out to check out Cali Vibes, make sure you look for the Noel Family Foundation tent. And uh, Damn, Kelly, I'm getting excited because I know that we're on the brink of making a pretty big announcement, guys. So we are. We have holy. some exciting stuff coming up. I'm super stoked. I think by the next show, we'll be able to announce it. So, um, Jared, as you know, we usually end the show with a song from the house that Bradley built. 
my favorite album by far, obviously, because there's so many great songs on there by so many great artists. But I think with this being the new year, we should end the show with Last Ska Song by Peril Bravo because we start every show with it, with a little tease of the song. I think it would be a nice way to end the show for the first episode of the year. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. It's one of my all-time favorite songs, uh, and that's why it is the introduction to this show. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, Pero Bravo's The Last Ska Song, um, which is uh, written pretty much about Miguel's interactions with your brother and the whole story, and fuck, I love that song. So I, I, I think that's a great idea. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you check out all of the social medias. Give us a follow wherever you're listening to this show. Like, comment, share. It means a whole lot to us. Looking forward to this awesome 2022 with all you guys and some of the amazing shows and news that the Noel Family Foundation is going to be breaking. But until next week, I am Jared Orr. She is Kelly Noel. We are out of time. You don't have to go home, but it's time to leave Bradley's house.
knows the name. And when they used to keep it real, or only worried about the bill. And they all seem to sound so tame. Beautiful.